The following audio is from Maranatha Chapel, located in San Diego, California. For more information about Maranatha Chapel, please visit www.maranathachapel.org. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Numbers chapter 27. And the title of my sermon for you this morning is What God Looks For in a Leader. It's a great question, right? What kinds of things is the Lord looking for in leadership? I'll set it up like this on Amazon right now. You can go to Amazon and you'll find currently 57,136 books with the word leadership in the title. Now, all of those books, along with all of the blogs and articles that you find across the web on this topic are in some way, shape or form trying to answer the same question. What makes a good leader? Because while everyone agrees that good leadership is essential to the success of a personal life or or a business or an enterprise or a nation for that matter, when it comes down to the question of which characteristic is most important for a leader to possess, well, on that topic, opinions vary. I mean, is it empathy or creativity or integrity or courage? or communication, or the ability to inspire and cast vision, or is it some combination therein? And for that matter, how are leaders made? Where do they come from? Are they born that way, or is it a skill that you can develop and learn and grow? Is it nature or nurture? I mean, questions on this topic abound. And yet, while there might be a lot of debate out there about what makes a great leader, spotting one is relatively easy. Right? You just you know when you see someone who is a leader. And by all accounts and by any metric or standard of measurement, I think we'd all agree with this statement. Moses was a great leader. For 40 years, he faithfully led the children of Israel through the wilderness, and he served as a a go-between, as a mediator between the people and their father in heaven, and he led them all the way to the brink of the promised land, but the time had come for him to move on. There comes a time in every leader's life, no matter how great they are, when they must step aside to make room for the next generation. And as we approach our text, that time had come for Moses. So today we get this privilege of eavesdropping on this private conversation between Moses and the Lord about who should succeed him as Israel's next leader. And as we listen in, we're going to gain some really valuable insights and lessons on the kinds of qualities that make for a great leader. Let's go ahead and begin reading there in verse 12 of Numbers 27. It says this, Then the Lord said to Moses, Go up this mountain into the Abiram range and see the land I've given the Israelites. And after you've seen it, you too will be gathered to your people as your brother Aaron was. For when the community rebelled at the waters in the desert of Zin, both of you disobeyed my command to honor me as holy before their eyes. These were the waters of Meribah, Kadesh, in the desert of Zin. So we see here a transition taking place in leadership. And that's the first point in your outline if you want to fill that in. A transition in leadership is about to happen. When the Lord tells Moses he's about to be gathered to his people, that's his way of telling him, you're about to go home, Moses. You're about to graduate. You're about to die. And I don't know about you, but I, I love that, that picture, that, that wordplay, that metaphor that the Lord uses. I mean, for the believer, 
Death is, is a, a family reunion where we are gathered to our people. Think of all those people that you're going to get to walk up and hug and embrace and see when you get into the Lord's presence. And Moses is right there at the door. He's 120 years old at this stage of his life. And really, when you look at the span of his life, you can break it up into three neatly divided chunks of 40 year segments. He spends the first 40 years of his life in the lap of luxury, being raised as one of Pharaoh's daughters in the courts of Egypt. He spends the next 40 years of his life wandering as a nomadic shepherd on the backside of the desert in obscurity. And all of that was preparation for the final chapter of Moses' life, which would be spent shepherding and leading the nation of Israel again to the brink of the promised land. But here the Lord tells him that he's not going to be the one to lead them in. Now, the reason Moses wasn't allowed to go into the promised land had to do with something that occurred years prior. And the Lord references it here. It happened soon after their deliverance from Egypt. And they found themselves in the desert, not many resources, not much water in the desert. And so the people began to complain, we need water. And the Lord instructs Moses to take his staff and strike a rock. And as soon as he does that, water gushes forth and meets the people's need. Well, sometime later, the people once again find themselves in need of water. And so they begin to complain to Moses and he goes to the Lord. And this is what the Lord says on that occasion. Speak to the rock and it will again produce water. But Moses is frustrated with the people. They're always complaining. And so he goes out and he misrepresents God and he takes his staff and he says, do I always have to produce water for you? And he hits the rock a second time and God provides the water, but he's displeased with Moses. And because of what happened in the way that that Moses mischaracterized the heart of God in that instance, he says, I'm keeping you out of the promised land, which I don't know about you, but to me, that seems kind of harsh. Seems a little heavy handed of the Lord to say you can't go in because of what appears to us to be a relatively small infraction. What gives? Well, there are a couple of reasons why the Lord dealt with Moses in this way. I'll point them out to you. First, it's not a small thing for a leader to mischaracterize or misrepresent the Lord. God wasn't angry with his people. He wanted to provide water for them, but Moses gave the people that impression. And so James addresses this, the importance that, that the, the weight that leaders have on them to really accurately carry the heart of the Lord. And he says this in James 3, 1. I'd love it if we could read it out loud. He says, not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. This is where all of you get to breathe a sigh of relief and I get to go, ugh. I mean, that's a sobering thought. And it should make any of us think twice before we jump into a position of leadership. Now, now let me tell you why the Lord deals more strictly with leaders. It's because the potential for damage is far greater. Right? When a, a leader misrepresents the Lord, there is the potential for him to drag a lot of people down with him. And so that's why leaders are held to a higher standard. And that's part of what's going on here and, and what we see at play. But the other reason God gets so upset with Moses is because he ruined this metaphor that the Lord was trying to paint with the rock. When Moses struck it a second time, a picture was ruined. What picture is that? Well, Jesus is the rock. 
that followed Israel throughout the wilderness from whom waters flowed to meet their needs. And that's not just me as a preacher trying to grasp at straws and pull out analogies and metaphors to drive home biblical messages. That's what the apostle Paul tells us. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 4, he doesn't say that the, the rock was a type or an analogy or a metaphor of Jesus. He says, that rock that followed Israel, I mean a moving rock that follows you, that rock that followed Israel throughout the wilderness was Jesus. So when it was struck a second time, the analogy was ruined. Why? Well, Jesus was only struck one time. When he hung on the cross, the Roman soldier took a spear and thrust it into his side. And what came out? water. And who all, for all who come under the waters that flow from his side, they find life and they find salvation. But he didn't need to be crucified twice. He wasn't struck twice, only once. So when Moses struck the rock a second time, the picture was ruined, which is unfortunate. But God doesn't waste anything, including ruined metaphors. <laughs> so while one picture gets ruined, another gets painted. It's in so many ways, fitting and perfect that Moses wouldn't be the one to lead Israel into the promised land. Why is that? Well, Moses represents the law. And there's a simple reason for that. He's the one through whom the law was given. He's the guy that carried down the 10 commandments on those two tablets of stone. And so he pictures the law. Now, while the law is righteous and pure and perfect and good, it's incapable of bringing us as God's children into the life of promises, the life of abundance, the life of victory. All it can do is point out all the ways that we fall short. So the law can never bring you into that abundant life that the New Testament talks about. Only Jesus can do that. It is his spirit within us that brings us not only the, the desire to perform what's right, but the ability to carry through on that. And Jesus is pictured in another Old Testament character named Joshua. So Joshua becomes the man to lead them in, and he becomes a type and picture of Jesus. In fact, the name Jesus is just the Greek transliteration of the name Joshua. And both names mean the exact same thing. They mean God is salvation. He's the one who brings us in. And so the picture is perfect. So now Moses engages the Lord in a conversation. He says, okay, I can't go in. Let's talk about the person who is going to bring the people in. And in verse 16, he says, may the Lord, the God who gives breath to all living things, appoint someone over this community to go out and come in before them. One who will lead them out and bring them in. So the Lord's people will not be like sheep without a shepherd. Let's talk for a few minutes about the qualities of a good leader. As Moses outlines some of those things for us here. And I find it telling and, and somewhat beautiful that Moses, in his response to this heartbreaking news, right, that he's not going to get to be the guy to lead the nation into the promised land, that had to break his heart. But his response is so telling. He doesn't grumble. He doesn't complain. He doesn't argue with the Lord or try to talk him out of that decision. But he expresses concern for the people. And in doing so, he shows what kind of leader he was. And by the way, this is the heart of every true great leader. Their primary concern will always be for those whom they've been tasked to lead. And so he says, Lord, I need you to appoint someone over the community. And in saying that, he's placing the responsibility of choosing Israel's next leader at the feet of the Lord. 
He doesn't assume that that should be his choice to make, having been the leader himself, nor does he think the people should get a vote on who Israel's next leader should be. No, he says, the choice, Lord, is yours. And by the way, that is such a good rule of thumb. Instead of presuming on things or giving the Lord a series of options, Lord, do you want to go with A, B, C, or D? I'm sure Moses had his thoughts. He says, Lord, the choice is yours. And God always reserves his best for those who leave the choice with him. However, while Moses may have left the final decision in the Lord's hands, he still had a few thoughts of his own about who God should select. And so he shares some of his opinions with the Lord here, and he proceeds to outline the the kinds of qualities that God should be looking for in a candidate. He kind of gives God a job description. Lord, here you go. And his first thought was the future leader should be someone who had gone out and come in before the people. What does that mean? Well, this was Moses' way of saying whoever got the job should be someone with a proven track record. They developed a history of going out before the people. This refers to a person's outward facing or public life. They had a good standing within the community. The coming in refers to their inward facing or private life. And and note this, that both aspects are important components of leadership. Moses is essentially saying whoever Israel's next leader is going to be needs to be the same person in private that they are in public. And that's, that's just good general advice. Your outward facing life, what people see, that's your reputation. Right? It reflects how others see you, how they perceive you, how they view you. And, and it's important. I mean, a, a good reputation is a valuable thing. It's something that should be guarded. After all, it's hard to achieve. Warren Buffett, the billionaire, he said, it takes 20 years to build a good, solid reputation and only five minutes to destroy it. True. The Proverbs say something similar. This is Proverbs 22, verse 1. Let's go ahead and read it together out loud. Choose a good reputation over great riches. Being held in high esteem is better than silver or gold. So there's value in guarding your reputation. Now, to a certain extent, you know, it's outside of your control, but your reputation gets built by how you handle yourself in public. And that matters. But if your reputation deals with your public persona and who people think you are, then your character reflects who you really are in private. It's who you are on the inside, and it gets revealed by who you become when you come in at night and close the door. Now, a person with godly character will be the same, regardless of whether or not anybody's watching. When someone is consistent, and they're going out, and they're coming in, they're just consistent in that way. They're said to have moral integrity. When something is integrous, it is without mixture, right? Think of a building, a building with structural integrity. It'll stand the test of time. And and I would say the same thing is true of individuals with integrity. Now, your giftedness, that can elevate you. It can give you a platform and it can usher you into positions of influence. However, It is only your character that will enable you to sustain that position over a period of time. The problem with a lot of people is that their giftedness carries them to places and positions that their character can't sustain, and so they eventually end up falling. Think of the Leaning Tower in Pisa. They're in Italy. 
And soon after its completion, inconsistencies in the soil beneath the foundation of the building were discovered, and it started to lean. So today, the building is leaning at a four-degree angle, and it's continuing to lean further and further. Why? Because the foundation was flawed. Something subterranean that nobody saw at the time affected the demise of the building. Now, what a foundation is for a building, character is for a life. Without a godly character, any leader, every leader, is doomed to topple over. Well, that brings us back to square one, right? Because we can't discern someone's character. We can't see what's on the inside. Moses understood that, which is why he leaves the choice with the Lord. I mean, it's relatively easy to fool people. You can pull the wool over their eyes and get them to believe you're something that you're not. But you can never fool God. The Bible says it like this. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him whom we must give account. God sees it all. What that means is while you can fool some of the people all the time and all of the people some of the time, you're never going to fool God. So stop trying. Just be honest with him and seek to develop your character. Now, the other quality that Moses identifies as essential for any would-be or potential leader is the ability to lead the people out and bring them in. Now, he's referring specifically here to this ability of leading the nation into war. Remember, Israel stands poised on the brink of the Jordan. They're getting ready to cross over into Canaan. And there were many battles that awaited them. And so they needed someone who could inspire the troops and lead the army in victory on the battlefield. Now, the key word in that second clause there that Moses is talking about is the word lead. Well, there are a lot of things that we could say about leadership. It almost goes without saying, but one of the key aspects of a leader is that must possess the ability to lead. Leaders lead. That's what they do. In fact, let me give you a simple test to help you discern or determine whether or not you're a leader. All you have to do is look over your shoulder. If there are people following you, it's a good indication that you are, in fact, a leader. (laughs) I love what leadership guru John Maxwell said on this particular point, and he he says it in the old King James, which I just appreciate. But he said this, he said, he who thinketh he leadeth, but no one followeth, merely taketh a walk, (laughs) which is just great. Moses was a great leader, and he recognized someone who comes behind me needs to also be able to lead other people. Now, the more he reflects on things, the more it dawns on him that the the qualities he's looking for in Israel's next leader are the same qualities that make for a good shepherd. And so he says, Lord, without a good leader, the people would become like sheep without a shepherd. What do shepherds do? They go out and they come in before the sheep. They lead the sheep out to pasture during the day and they bring them into the safety of the pen at night. Now, this is something that Moses could draw upon. He was well acquainted with the role of shepherds and and, and the vital role that they played in the well-being of sheep, having been one himself. And, And so he had spent so much time, 40 years, a third of his life, shepherding in obscurity. And I'm sure there were points at which 
In that season of his life, he thought those were wasted years. And perhaps even reflecting on them, he goes, man, I wasted a whole third of my life just watching sheep. But, but now it starts to settle on him in the closing chapter of his life that, oh, Lord, you were up to something when I was invisible, when nobody saw me, when I was just out there alone with the sheep. You were building into me the attributes that I would ultimately need to become a shepherd of a nation. And can I just say this to all of you? You feel perhaps unseen. You feel insignificant. You feel invisible, like what you're doing doesn't really matter. And it could be that just like Moses with those sheep, God is using this season of your life to instill within you the characteristics that you're going to need that will carry you through what he has planned for you in the next season of your life. There are no wasted seasons with God. Everything has a plan. Everything is part of his purpose. And he's working all things together for good in your life right now. Say amen. 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 Now, I want to add this as well. The same qualities that make for a good leader and a good shepherd are simultaneously the same qualities that make for a good pastor. As a matter of fact, the word pastor It comes from the Latin word for shepherd, which is interesting. And and you see the crossover between shepherding and pastoring. It gets highlighted throughout, well, the whole Bible, really, but in particular in several places in the New Testament. Of course, we recognize Jesus as the good shepherd. That's a title that he gave to himself. I am the good shepherd. But then he bestowed that same responsibility on Peter. Before he ascended into heaven, he met with Peter after the resurrection, and he told him three times, feed my sheep, take care of my sheep. Later on in the book of Acts, Paul spoke to the Ephesian elders, and he told them to shepherd God's flock. And for all intents and purposes, that's the job of a pastor. A pastor is a shepherd. My job is to lead this flock called Maranatha and to guide you and to protect you from, from wolves and other things that would want to, to harm you. That's what pastors do. And I, I just want to get personal for a minute. The Lord impressed this on my heart this last week. And I was actually, it was hard, but I just want to bring you in. So this, there was this really specific moment in my life where the Lord confirmed to me, at least, that I was called to be Maranatha's next shepherd. And it happened on the day following my dad's sudden and tragic passing. That happened on a Tuesday afternoon. And the following morning, I got together with some of the leadership here at the church. And, and there were lots of things that needed to be addressed. You know, and my dad was a public figure. And, and so someone was appointed to handle all of the, the media requests that were coming in. And And then someone else was given the responsibility of communicating with the church body and and letting people know. And then someone else offered to to handle the Wednesday night service because it was Wednesday and I was supposed to be preaching. And I was like, I can't, you know. And and then the question of this, the following weekend came up and I was surprised to hear myself say, I want to do it. And the reason I was surprised is because that's not my natural disposition, you know, um, I'm the kind of guy that when something like that happens, I want to get away. I want to get alone. I just want to be by myself. And, and yet in that moment, all I could think about was wanting to be with my church family. And I, I wanted to grieve with all of you. And I understood that, that, that your hearts would be grieving too. I mean, my dad was the only shepherd this 
flock had ever known since its inception. And, and I just wanted to, to grieve with the body. And so that's what we did. And I, I came here that Sunday and, and, and shared a few things. But really, we just wept together. We grieved together. And, and, and God formed this bond. And, and I just I share that because to me, it was a really significant moment wherein God was instilling within me the heart of a shepherd to want to shepherd this flock. And it was a couple weeks later that you know, the elders and the board laid their hands on me and appointed me as Maranatha's next shepherd officially, but it had already happened in my heart. And, and that's what a pastor is, someone who shepherds the church family. So this is Moses talking about leadership and what makes for a good leader. But now let's read the Lord's take on leadership. So the Lord now says to Moses in verse 18, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership and lay your hands on him and have him stand before Eliezer, the priest in the entire assembly and commission him in their presence. Give him some of your authority so the whole Israelite community will obey him. He's to stand before Eliezer, the priest who will obtain decisions for him by inquiring of the Urim before the Lord. At his command, he and the entire community of the Israelites will go out and at his command, they will come in. Moses did as the Lord commanded him. He took Joshua and had him stand before Eliezer, the priest and the whole assembly. And he laid his hands on him and he commissioned him as the Lord instructed through Moses. We've talked about, you know, some of the qualities that make for a good leader. But here the Lord tells us what he looks for in a leader. And that's the third point in our outline this morning, what God looks for in a leader. God patiently listens to Moses articulate his thoughts on the kind of person he felt like God should be looking for. And he outlines and he gives the job description and they need to be a good, strong person and they need to have good moral fiber and they need to have a shepherd's heart. And, and the Lord listens. But after he was finished, the Lord says, I've already chosen Israel's next leader. <laughs> Would you care to listen to who I have picked? And he shares with him that it's Joshua. And certainly as soon as Moses hears that name on the Lord's lips, a grin jumps onto his face. After all, these guys had, had logged a serious amount of time together over the previous four decades, walking together, serving with one another. And during that time, Joshua had proven himself time and time again as a wise and effective leader. I mean, in so many ways. Joshua was the perfect choice, the obvious choice to succeed Moses. He possessed that right mixture of gifts and experience to effectively lead the people. Think about it. He was brave. He proved that when he went in as one of the 12 spies into the promised land and came back with a positive report along with Caleb. He was also capable. He proved that on the battlefield as he led the Israelites into uh, that fight against the Amalekites. He was also humble, another essential quality. And he proved that by serving at Moses' right-hand side for 40 years. You know, in the military circles, there's a saying that goes like this. He who cannot com obey cannot command. In other words, if you don't know how to submit to authority, then you don't and shouldn't be given the right to exercise authority. It was Joshua's willingness to serve that elevated him. Those who humble themselves under the mighty hand of God, he lifts up. And so in all these ways, he proved to be just the perfect choice. All these experiences qualified him. However, 
When the Lord identifies Joshua as the guy, he doesn't point to any of that stuff. Did you notice? Instead, God zeroes in on one character trait, one quality that he highlights as the sole reason that Joshua is picked. And and we read about it in that verse where it says, Joshua is a man in whom was the spirit. Now in the NIV, which I'm reading out of, it says, a man in whom is the spirit of leadership. But you can just take your pen, pen and cross out the words of leadership because they're not there in the original language. They're added by the translators to help kind of bring out the intention of the author. But I think they missed it on this one. Because when you go back to the original text, what it says is, he's a man in whom is the ruach. Everybody say ruach. It's a word that is at various points in the Bible translated in a couple of different ways. It shows up as the word wind, shows up as the word breath. And it shows up as the word spirit. First time it appears is in Genesis chapter one, verse two, where we read that after the, the Lord speaks into existence, the cosmos, that, that, that the earth was without form and void and darkness was upon the face of the deep and the spirit, the Ruach of God moved upon the face of the waters. And I would suggest to you that the spirit of God that hovered over the face of the waters in Genesis 1-2 is the same spirit that filled and dominated the life of this man named Joshua. And that's what qualified him to lead the nation. Was Joshua gifted? Absolutely. Was he experienced? Without a doubt. Was he capable? Yes. Was he qualified in so many ways? Absolutely. But those aren't the reasons why God chose him. In the Lord's eyes, the thing that caused him to stand out was the fact that he was a man in whom the Spirit of God dwelt. And above all, as we consider what it takes and what it means and what it looks like to be the kind of leader that God is looking for, above all else, you need to be a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit. The anointing of the Holy Spirit is what makes all the difference. Without the anointing of the Spirit, all the other stuff, it's just show. It doesn't matter. Without the anointing, the church is just a country club. Worship is just a concert. Pastors are just motivational speakers, and sermons are nothing more than self-help talks. What is needed in the church today, what is needed in the community today, are leaders who are filled and anointed and are dominated by the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. He makes all the difference. Can you say amen? (laughs) Now, here's what's beautiful. Just like Joshua, you are a person who is filled with the Holy Spirit. You see, the moment you invite the Lord Jesus to come into your life, to forgive you of your sins. In that moment, God moves in and he takes up residence and his Holy Spirit, he begins to flood every corner of your life. Now, I want to mention something. God doesn't give his Holy Spirit in degrees or in measures or in parts. You didn't get a little baby version of the Holy Spirit. We often, you know, in churches talk about, I need more of the Holy Spirit. And I I understand to some extent what you mean when you say that. And I've even said that myself. But theologically, that's not what is needed. 
What we need more of is the anointing, the power. That's what we mean when we talk about, I want more of the Spirit. I want more of His influence in my life to come to bear. So the question becomes, how do you obtain more of that anointing? How do you walk in more of that authority and that power? And if you come back next week, I'm going to tell you. I'm kidding, I'm kidding, I'm kidding. It really comes down to one thing, and I can answer the question with a single word. It all comes down to this, surrender. It's not that you need more of the Holy Spirit. It's that He needs more of you. So the more access you give to God, the more you open your heart and you say, God, here's all the keys. You have access to every room. I surrender all that I am, my heart, my will, my desires, my emotions, my dreams, my past, my present, and my future. As you surrender that to the Lord, you get more of his anointing resting upon you. You're able to walk in more power and more authority. And so this is what makes a great leader, and it's something all of us are called to be, whether you're called to lead a church, a nation like Joshua, or a family, or children, or a community, or um, a disciple, uh, or whatever it is. In any context, you need more of the Holy Spirit, and He needs more of you, is what I mean by that. Now, there's one more aspect of leadership these verses point to that I want you to see. Moses, the Lord instructs Moses, rather, to take Joshua and place him right before Eliezer, who's the priest. And he makes a point of saying, this is how I want you to do life. If you're going to be the leader, you need to stand before the priest. Why? So that you can obtain the mind of the Lord. Now, the way they would do it in those days was really kind of interesting and somewhat mysterious. Eliezer, the priest, he had these priestly garments and sewn into them was this pouch, this leather pouch. And and in it were these two rocks called the Urim. He mentions it here and the Thummim. And those words mean light and perfection. And in some mysterious way, you would come to God as the leader and you would say, Lord, here's my question. Should we go into battle or should we withdraw? Uh, and, and you would ask the question of the Lord and the priest would reach his hand in and we don't know for sure what happened. Maybe what, there was a white stone and a black stone and that helped them determine God's will or, or maybe a, a stone would, would light up or in some way they would discern the mind of the Lord through this process. It's kind of cool, kind of interesting. That's Old Testament. You're thinking, yeah, it'd be pretty cool if I had a guy that I could just, a magic eight ball, I could shake it. Lord, am I supposed to marry her or not, you know? So what am I to do? Well, we don't have the Urim and the Thummim. We don't have the light and the perfection in a pouch on our chest. What we have is the Holy Spirit. And we have this gift called prayer. And I am firmly convinced that we would walk in so much more clarity in our lives, that there would be so much more conviction, so much more boldness in the decisions that we make if we would learn to bathe all of our decision-making processes in this thing called prayer. And we would learn how to discern the mind of the Lord. It's mysterious, this thing called prayer, isn't it? And it's, it's, it's not always the easiest. You've got to learn how to detect and determine this is the Lord's leading. And the more you do it, the more comfortable you become with it. And you walk in the guiding of the Holy Spirit and you'll hear a voice in your ear saying, this is the way. Walk in it. Turn to the left. Turn to the right. Speak. Hold back. Go forward. Stop. 
And whatever the Lord says, you learn to be led. And that is a character trait of a godly leader, someone filled by the Spirit, someone led by the Spirit. Now, as we conclude, some of you are thinking this is all good and it's great and you're the leader of this church and maybe some of you own a company and so it applies on that level to them, but I'm not really leadership material. And as I look over my shoulder, I don't see a lot of people following. So I don't know, this one just doesn't feel like it applies to me. I haven't been commissioned. Moses commissioned Joshua to lead a nation. And you haven't been commissioned to lead a nation, but you have been commissioned. And your commission is far greater in its importance, far more impactful in its significance too. See, just before Jesus ascends to heaven, he gathers the disciples and he commissions them, doesn't he? And he says, all authority in heaven and earth has been given unto me. So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And I will be with you even to the end of the age. We know those words as the Great Commission. And they weren't just to be applied to those 11 disciples who were standing there with Jesus on that day, but they apply to each of us who call ourselves disciples of Jesus in this day. We've been commissioned to lead those who are in bondage into the kingdom of God, into the family of God, to lead the lost to salvation, to be leaders in our homes, leaders in our churches, leaders in our community, leaders in our family. You have been called to lead and you say, I don't know if I have what it takes. Well, I love how our text says that Moses was to take his hands and lay them on Joshua and give him some of his authority. That's an important component of leadership, giving away authority. And so the Lord says to you and me, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. So go, therefore, in other words, go in my authority, go with my power, go in my name and lead, become leaders. You have been charged. You have been commissioned. You have been called. You have been filled with his spirit. You have the spirit to lead you and to guide you in all of your goings out, in all of your coming in, in everything you do as you give more of your heart to him, as you surrender to him, the leadership comes upon you and you find yourself being used by the Lord, just like Joshua, but even in greater ways. Thank you for listening to this podcast from Maranatha Chapel. If you haven't already, please subscribe for weekly messages. Feel free to share this podcast and join us for our weekend services held Saturday evening or Sunday morning. Visit our website at www.maranathachapel.org for more information.